We've been reading again at verse 15. But it will be particularly verses 17 and 18, 19, 20 that we will take up this morning hour. Uh, Again, Matthew 18, verse 15. I'll begin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. This is not a pleasant part of the passage that we have opened up in weeks past. It's not been a particularly pleasant task for me to open up this week for myself what Jesus means in the latter part of this passage. And I'm sure there will be some unpleasantness to your hearing it. I make no apology, brothers and sisters. This is not the note that I wish to end on in our study of the theme of reconciliation, but it is a note that I must strike at some point in our study of the biblical theme of reconciliation between brothers. It's going to strike you as strange, perhaps, but this passage is important to the topic we've taken up for this reason. There is a time when deliberate alienation rather than reconciliation is the right response to your brother's sin. There's a time when deliberate alienation rather than reconciliation is the biblical response to your brother's sin. Now, that's what we want to take out. What? What time? What is this alienation? Why? Those are really going to be the three questions we take up This morning, and as we begin to think about this, as challenging as it will be to us to put these things together, alienation, reconciliation, what do they have to do with each other? What way could they ever be related? What way could one ever serve the other? As we grapple with this, and not only that, as we perhaps have some reflexive thoughts of How can we think of there being any, any kind of biblical alienation from another brother? Well, you need to remember a a note that I made in an earlier study. It was a minor note at the time, but it was when I raised the question in the subject of forgiveness and what it means and how Christians are to forgive their brothers. And I asked the question at one point, 
is all of this, the biblical concept of forgiveness, to be extended to the non-Christian, to the one who's not a brother. That's not the kind of situation Jesus is envisioning here, but we need to ask that question because we're also wronged by those who are not Christians. And it's forgiveness in its fullest sense, in its fullest biblical sense, to be extended to those who are not our brethren in Christ. And the answer to that question, as we saw it, was no. In the fullest sense of that word, we cannot extend that forgiveness. Forgiveness is a removing of sin between us and another person, and it's a removing of that sin without any intention of ever bringing it up again. Now, we thought at the time about the psalmist as he prays that God would judge his enemies for their sins against him, but really he stands in a representative place as those who've sinned against the church and against the anointed of the Lord. He says things like, let the Lord rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind may be the portion of their cup. Now, he has not granted forgiveness in the full and final sense of that word. And why are we able to speak that way? This is still to try to prepare you for what we're going to see this morning. Well, we say that because we are in this as in every way to be imitators of our Father in heaven. Though this leads us to a difficult teaching of the Scripture about our Father in heaven. We recognize, don't we, from the Scriptures that does he show kindness and patience towards all men alike? Yes. And we should too. We should be like him in that. We should be, show kindness and patience towards all men. Does he show loving and compassionate desire towards them? Even desire to forgive them? Yes. And we should as well. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He has a desire that they be forgiven. He says that of those who, who put the nails in his hands and feet. But has our Father forgiven all men? Most emphatically not. There are many all around us who are alienated from him. He has no fellowship with them. They are unforgiven. He holds their sin against them. He will bring it up to them on the last day. Their sin has not been put away. It's still between him and them. And we are to be imitators of our Father. So we are to love all men. We're not to be embittered. And oftentimes we use the word forgiveness to refer to just not being bitter. If that's the sense in which we mean it, we can say we should forgive all men. But the full biblical sense of forgiveness is to put away their sin, never to bring it up. And that is not how God or his people can ultimately act towards those who have not bowed and submitted to Christ. Now, what does all this have to do with the topic for this morning? Well, we recognize there is that alienation, that is that proper alienation between the church and the world. We're talking about the tension that should exist in our minds between following Christ's example and seeking and saving the lost, and yet at the same time preserving a certain a boundary between the, the church and the world. For us, for our children, that we be separate from the world. There's a tension that we have to play out in our lives. What does this have to do with peacemaking in the church? Well, according to our Lord, there are times when our efforts at reconciliation with a brother will need to come to a place of deliberately alienate him 
because he is not acting like a brother. That is to say, we're going to have to as recognize as a church there are times when attempts to reconcile will fail because that person, though calling himself a brother, should not be regarded as such a person and should be regarded rather as one of the world. And so that's the, the challenging topic before us. And it comes in a timely way, in a sense, because of what was done last Sunday morning. If you will recall, if you were here, and the church discipline that was carried out then. Let's ask, first of all, when is this alienation called for? When is it called for? And if you will, for your notes, the answer you can put in one sentence is this. When the brother is guilty of unrepentant sin that is incompatible with his profession of faith. When a brother is guilty of unrepentant sin that's incompatible with his profession of faith. Now, Jesus in Matthew 18 envisions this process of reconciliation ultimately failing. That is where he goes as he continues. He, of course, comments early on, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, but he doesn't assume that that's going to happen. He assumes, for the sake of his instruction, that that's not going to happen. So, what we have here is a brother, and the emphasis on this, a brother who refuses to listen. That's the emphasis several times over. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him a certain way. Now, here's a, a point I need to make very clearly. Alienation that I'm talking about this morning is never, it is never to be carried out, if I might put it this way, merely for sin. The alienation of which I'm speaking is never to be practiced towards a brother merely for sin, but always for unrepentant sin. Brothers sin. We, as the people of God, sin. We sin in grievous ways. We all carry around in our hearts the capacity to violate all of God's laws, both in their inward expressions and outward expressions. All of us sin. And alienation between us and God and between us and the brethren is never founded upon sin. If I may put it this way, mere sin. It's founded or it's provoked by unrepentant sin. Could you theoretically rob a bank and remain a member of the church? Theoretically, yes. Could you in a fit of rage kill someone and remain a member of the church? Theoretically, yes. And I could go on with such dramatic illustrations. Why do I say that? Not because I take those sins lightly, but because those sins are not sins unto death if there's repentance. The church may have intermediate forms of rebuke, and while they're seeking to know that the, the nature of the repentance may have even the step of suspension from the table, and yet you could be sitting in prison on death row and be a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. It's not sin, but unrepentance. And that's very clear from our text. But as we think about that, Jesus would seem to say that any unrepentant sin, the grounds for this kind of alienation that I'm speaking of, any sin, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. That's how the passage begins. And we might think there he's sinned and maybe he's saying something careless to us. 
It was just a, a word, a, a passing comment. Is he really, if he's unrepentant of that, is he really going to suffer all the consequences that come from this? Maybe that's troubled you a little bit as you've read the passage in the past. You might get the impression that Jesus is talking about any sin whatsoever that's unrepented of. And here I think we need to recognize something that's implicit in the passage. In our messy world, and our messy hearts, in our messy lives, and our messy fellowship with one another, there are sins. They're not patterns. They're incidences where there's genuine sin and there's attempts to confront someone with that sin. And it, it, it just doesn't go well. It bogs down. And there's honest disagreement about whether there's sin involved. We could think of a lot of situations. My uh, propensity for, for clear lines and, and um, crisp instructions I'm a little bit frustrated when I think about this fact. There are many times when we will need to confront a brother, maybe even go with another brother to him, and then finally recognize, you know, this, this is not of such a magnitude that it really makes this person's profession in doubt. And I think I need even at this late date to simply cover it. I don't, I don't like the fact that that's going to have to happen from time to time, but it does. It does have to happen. No, I think what Jesus is talking about are patterns of sin. Patterns of sin that go in a sustained way, unrepented of, that make a person's profession unbelievable. Not just patterns of robbing banks. It could be patterns of gossip, of slander of unkindness, of harshness, of disrespect, and the like. It could be patterns of sin like that. And yet, patterns of sin that ultimately lead the church as a whole to conclude this person is not who he says he is. We are to treat such a person like a Gentile, Jesus says, because he's acting like a Gentile. Now, before I move on from asking the question, when is this alienation called for? I want to make the observation to you that there's something running through the whole passage. When we come to the place of alienation, there's something running through the whole passage that is, I trust something you already understand. I emphasize it to you this morning. When you and I become part of a body of Christians, the people of God, the covenant community, what we are doing when we become part of that body is we're committing ourselves not only to live a certain way, but we're also surrendering ourselves to that body to evaluate and hold us accountable to the way we live. That's the nature of the church. It's not a concept that comes easily to people in our day, but it is a biblical view of the church. In this passage, Jesus is taking an offense that begins privately but then eventually goes all the way to the whole church. And the whole church is going to be involved. And what lies underneath that is the supposition that it's really a matter of the whole church's concern, how each individual lives. Does that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? I hope it does. I hope it does. I said, well, it's not on my face. But you shouldn't feel easy about that. That is a very healthy, but not altogether comfortable way that God has made the church to be. And let me say to you even more pointedly, 
one thing you cannot do and remain a part of this church, one thing you cannot do and remain a part of this community is to stop repenting of your sin. You can't stop repenting of your sin. And you go on sinning, yeah, we expect that. You shouldn't. You ought to confess your sin. God help you not to. But that's not going to remove the relationship that you have with this body. But what you cannot not do is stop repenting. Can I put it to you that way? That's very clear from how Jesus speaks. The moment that you do this, the moment that you stop showing yourself sensitive to sin, brothers and sisters, and willing to turn from it, the moment that happens, you're showing yourself to be someone who does not walk like he professes. In a sense, you're asking yourself, you're asking the congregation to take a second look at whether you belong here. Let's move on. We ask, when is this alienation called for? The second question is, what does this alienation look like? Again, because it's such a foreign concept in our day, even in the church. We'll have to answer this question for your notes. I'll put the answer this way. It consists in the withdrawal of Christian fellowship from the individual by the whole church. The withdrawal of Christian fellowship from the individual by the whole church. And you'll notice three things as we unpack that nature of alienation, what it looks like. First, in my text, it becomes obvious it's no longer a personal matter. It is a congregational matter. It's no longer a private matter, we might say. It's a public matter. And that's shown several ways in our text. It's shown because in verse 17, it's eventually told to the whole church. The individual refuses to listen to the two or three. Verse 17 says, tell it to the church. It becomes a public and congregational matter because, for one, it's told to the whole church. How can that be loving? How can that be kind? How can that be winsome? Well, brothers and sisters, I, I want to, before we, we try to answer that question, I want to simply show you, point again to you, the fact that Jesus, who defines those concepts for us, tells us to do it. He says, tell it to the whole church. And it's not just Jesus that does it, but that would be enough. Paul makes it clear in other places, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Timothy 5, that this is to take place, that the whole congregation is to become involved. 1 Timothy 5 says, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others take warning. And he's speaking there especially of the sins of elders, but of any sin that is public, it should be rebuked publicly. It also becomes a corporate matter, a public matter, because the whole church begins to be involved in confronting the individual. Look at verse 17 again. Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, what's implied there? Well, it's implied that it began by this individual having a, an individual come to him, then the individual coming, having several people come to him, and then the individual having a whole community come to him. Now, lining up at his door, I'm not sure that is exactly what Jesus has in mind, but the whole church being aware and the whole church taking a posture of pleading with that person, please, please, don't continue in the way that you're going. The church has to deal 
or rather, let me say, by way of illustration, uh, if a wife in the congregation, a woman who's married in the congregation, has to deal with an unfaithful husband, that's a very personal and initially a very private matter, isn't it? And the offense is very direct. It's against her. But then eventually, if he doesn't repent, what Jesus is saying is the offense begins to be shared by the whole congregation. The whole congregation is one who's right to say, you need to repent against your sin against us as well as our sister. And the way that this is most clearly seen to be corporate and public is that the whole church begins to take a posture, a certain posture towards that person. He says in verse 17, let him be to you. And by that point, he's talking about the whole congregation, the whole church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. By the way, this point that it's a matter, this alienation, what it looks like, it looks like a very public and corporate thing. This one, one, one implication of that is that we don't go around as individuals alienating ourselves from other people. We don't take into our own hands the Matthew 18 process from beginning to end and say, well, I went with one or two and now I'm simply going to alienate myself from them. That's not your, your life. That's not your prerogative. No, it goes to the church. It's a matter of such substance that denies his profession. And the church takes on this posture. What is this posture? The second thing we can say about this alienation, what it looks like, is that it involves a formal removal from membership in the community. That's implied in this passage and made very explicit in other passages. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, and he uses Old Testament language, but the man involved in a great sin, he says, expel the wicked man from among you. Where did that language come from? It comes from the Old Testament, actually. And the reference is actually in the Old Testament to capital punishment. It's what Moses required to be done to those guilty of grievous sin. Grievous sin. Certain kinds of sins which receive capital punishment, the death penalty. Well, Paul here applies it not to a physical ex- execution, but what we call excommunication, a removal from the church. That's how Paul puts it in the New Covenant time. We withhold the sacrament of the Lord's Supper from such a person. We take their name off the roll and so on. And we have, as a church, have had to do that with many tears. In years past, haven't we? Paul actually speaks this strongly. He says, when you do that, you're handing this person over to Satan. But he goes on to say, so that his soul may be saved in the last day. We'll talk about what he means by that latter. When he says, handing him over to Satan, what he means is that the whole world is, in the way John says in 1 John 5, under the control of the evil one. He says, when you put them outside the church, you're putting them there in the realm of the evil one, the the devil. Jesus, in this passage, talked about that in a very dramatic way when he says in verse 18, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so there's something very formal, there's something very judicial that's to take place in the case of an unrepentant brother who's being removed from the congregation. 
But I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that the alienation goes further than that. It's not just a formality that Jesus has in mind. It's not just a a clerical change to a role. Look again at what Jesus says. The third thing that this alienation looks like is a radically altered social interaction with that person. Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile, as a tax collector. When he speaks that way, he's speaking in very provocative terms to those in his day. Those are strong sentiments. They're even stronger than what the Apostle Paul says. He speaks in 1 Corinthians 5 of this same process, and he says, don't even eat with such a person. That's pretty strong. In Titus chapter 3, he says, have nothing to do with him. That's pretty strong. But Jesus, stronger than any of those. When he says, treat him like a Gentile, a tax collector. What does he mean? What is he trying to bring to the hearers' minds? Well, he's trying to bring something to their minds that's rather unpleasant. Reality they all entered into in their day of the way Jews and Gentiles related to each other. Jews and Gentiles had not friendly relations. They had very distant and strained relations. Jews often spoke of Gentiles as dogs because they were outside the privileged covenant community of the Lord. Jesus actually referred to them as dogs one time. So arguably, he was using that to provoke faith in the part of one of the women who was a Gentile and was seeking him. Those were Gentiles. Tax collectors. Why, these would be even worse. Tax collectors were those symbols in Jesus' day of Gentile domination. The Jews were not ruled by their own leaders. They were ruled by Gentile dogs. And the tax collectors were those who would come and in the way that was most offensive would stick right in their face the fact that they were under the heel of the Gentiles. Tax collectors came and said, Caesar says, you owe such and such. And sometimes those tax collectors were Jews. Sometimes they were even their own brothers who went over, as it were, to the other side and became servants of the Gentile dogs. That's what makes it so remarkable if you understand that context that one of the disciples, as a former profession, was a tax collector. Matthew. Well, Jesus takes those two very provocative things, Gentiles, and even worse, tax collectors. And he says, this person who was a brother, who still considers himself a brother, and yet he will not repent of this pattern of sin, you treat him like a Gentile, like a tax collector. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not condoning every kind of Jewish behavior towards those classes of people. Surely he's not. And he tells us a parable, doesn't he? The parable of the Good Samaritan that shows us that he doesn't condone all the behavior of Jews towards these. But here he is doing. He's doing nothing less than this. He's emphasizing there should be a radical change. Not just in the way you formally look at someone, but how you informally treat them, interact with them, and so on. 
There's to be a radical change in the way that you converse with such a person, the way that you spend time, if at all. You may have once regarded them highly. He says, you treat them like a Gentile. You may not regard them highly as you once did. He says, you once may have looked upon them as part of your own community. You may not now look at them that way. You once perhaps enjoyed being with them for its own sake, just to be with them. You may not look on them that way any longer. Brothers and sisters, these are hard words. These are Jesus' words. This is what Jesus is calling the people of God to do. What would that look like? How would that be played out? If there was such a, a brother in such a community, if there is such a person among us, that we must pursue this kind of biblical alienation with, what would it look like? Well, I need to say to you, it would look like our beginning to treat them like a non-Christian. And all that that involves. And I need to say to you, on the other hand, it would involve our treating them like something worse than a non-Christian. Let me tell you what I mean by those two things. How do you treat non-Christians? Well, you don't speak to them as brothers, right? You don't call them brother. You don't act as if they're the closest friends that you have because they do not have the same love for Christ. Matter of fact, they're enemies of Christ. So you don't have the same kinds of fellowship. You seek to witness to them, but your friendships with them are more limited than your friendships with the church. That's how we speak and act rightly with those who are pagans or Gentiles, we could say. We are to go further than that. With those who are once counted among us as brothers, who are guilty of unrepentant sin, the alienation Jesus talks about goes further. And I want to remind you of the passage that was read last Sunday morning from 1 Corinthians 5. Remember how Paul speaks there? He says, I wrote to you telling you not to associate with the sexually immoral and so on. He says, I didn't mean by that the sexually immoral of this world. If I had meant that, it'd mean you'd have to get out of the world because they're all over the place, especially in court. He says, I was saying to you not to associate with the sexually immoral who call themselves a brother. And then he goes on to say, with such a person, don't even eat. What's Paul doing? Well, Paul is putting those who've been part of the covenant community and yet who've shown themselves to be rebellious in a category even more distant from us than the unbeliever. Can you eat? Can you eat with an unbeliever? Can you take lunch break with them, guys? Can you do that? Yes, you can. You can have a lunch break and you can even spend the whole lunch break talking about the Panthers if you want to. I trust that your goal in those lunches is to eventually begin to work into that in the gospel. Can you have lunch? Can you, bring, can you invite the, the guy across the street over to your house? I hope you can. You certainly should. Paul is putting this person who calls himself a brother and yet is guilty of unrepentant sin in a different category altogether. You should treat him even differently than you do a Gentile, a pagan. You, in other words, cannot have him over for lunch just to chat. You can't. You cannot talk sports and weather with him. You have nothing to do with him. 
You can't go camping, boating, garage sailing. The list could go on. You cannot do that with him. You can do it with your atheist neighbor. But you can't do it with him. I'm going to ask the question as we conclude in a moment. Why? Why is all that? It's so hard sounding. Why? I simply want to make the point here. The person who calls himself a brother has been counted among the people of God. And it is not responsive to the confrontation of the church. He's in a worse position than the men of the world and should be treated that way. The young people of this church, perhaps in particular, need to listen to me when I speak this way. We have known in this church, haven't we? We've known what it was like for children who've been baptized in this church, who profess their faith in this church, who've taken the Lord's Supper over the years in this church, who've gone to Sunday school, who've joined in worship, who've perhaps even done things like teach or, or be part of Bible studies, who eventually turned away from the Lord. They've been confronted by the church, by individuals, by elders, eventually by the whole church. They've been put out. And there they are. They're young people. And they're those that there's still a lot of affection for, as is right. A lot of compassion, a lot of desires for, for them to return. And all, young people, listen to me carefully. They're your friends, or at least they've been your friends. And you ask, am I to not treat them like friends? Am I to, am I to not show them the love that I have for their souls? There's a sense in which you must show them the love you have for their souls by alienating them. By saying in every move of your body when they're around, by every word of your lips, I cannot have anything to do with you because of what you've done because of what you're not willing to do. And Jesus defines that as love. Why? That's the last question this morning. Why? How can that be loving? How can that fit at all with the desire to be reconciled? How does it fit? Well, there are multiple reasons why Jesus calls us to this. I'm not going to open up uh, all of them this morning. The honor of Christ is at stake. That's one reason. The purity of the church is at stake. That's another reason. For all this alienation that I've been talking about here. But in light of the subject that we're pursuing in these morning sermons, I want to emphasize a third reason why this biblical alienation is called for. According to the testimony of Scripture, at a certain point, this is the step that is the most effective way to achieve reconciliation between that person and God and that person and the people of God. According to Scripture, brothers and sisters, that is the most effective way at some point of actually achieving that reconciliation. 
It may cut against the grain of everything that is intuitive to you. It may and certainly does cut against the grain of everything that seems to come naturally to the wisdom of men. But that is the wisdom of God. You see, at some point, the person who is unrepented in their sin and who we desperately want to see reconciled to the church, at some point, we go beyond God. We become wiser than God if we seek to, in an unending way, show fellowship and, and uh, affection and intimacy and make ourselves wiser than God. Because the Lord withdraws from those who are His elect in order to chasten them and bring them to a sense of their need of Him. And He calls us to do the same. And we must make it forefront of our mind. We do this in order that they might ultimately be reconciled. Will they? We don't know. But we do know this. In God's plan, this is the most effective way at that final point. I want to give you an illustration of this, and then we'll be done. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 first. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep your finger there. I've referred to this passage already this morning. We read from it last Sunday morning. Paul says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, what is motivating the apostles' language there, I think, is the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. Pagans don't even do this. It goes on, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It goes on, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment of the one who did such a thing. You are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and the purpose, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we don't know who this fellow was. Thankfully, we don't know a lot about the circumstances. They sound rather unpleasant. Whatever, whatever happened to this guy? These terrible things that Paul says that they're to do. Hand him over to Satan. Whatever came of this guy? Well, we happen to know something of that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In this second epistle, it's agreed by those who study it that he's picking up on that very same issue that he was so ferocious about in the first epistle. In 2 Corinthians 2, we hear him say this. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And it becomes obvious as he continues, brothers and sisters, that he has a particular person in mind. It's the same person from the first epistle. So that you should, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. But this is why I wrote. That I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 
what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. The Apostle gives to us in these two letters all the unpleasantness of the kind of alienation we've been talking about this morning. But he also, in God's good providence, gives us in the second letter the fruit of that alienation, the purpose that we should have in pursuing it, as painful as it is, that we might have an occasion when we can reaffirm our love to that formerly unrepentant brother. And so, my friends, again, this is not the note on which we'll end. But this is the note that must be struck as we talk about how is it that Jesus has called us to achieve reconciliation between us and a brother. There are times, against all our instincts perhaps, there are times when that reconciliation will only be achieved through a season of whole church alienation. So that, as Paul says in another place, that one will be ashamed and return to be reconciled. Let's pray together. Father, we are not wiser than you, and so we pray. Keep us from ever presuming to act as if we were. We are mindful that our instincts are imperfect. And that even in recent days, in which we have had this burden to pursue this biblical alienation with one of our former members, does not immediately strike us in any way to be that which is consistent with love and mercy. We've been listening to you, Lord Jesus, and to your servants, your apostles. We believe. Our faith is weak, but we nonetheless say we believe. You've put in our hands, though at a desperate last measure, yet a real and effective measure for being reconciled to those that no longer continue to walk with us. We pray that you will do this in the life of Hope Matthews. We pray that again this week. And we will continue to pray that. Use, O oh Lord, the change that has come about in us towards her, obedience to the Scripture, to work in her, that repentance, it has not been evident. Bring her back, we pray, to seek reconciliation to us and make us ready to fall upon her as we would any who left us as a church. To fall upon her with love and affection renewed and forgiveness because you have forgiven her. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will give us what we need to hear and to heed these words. We pray in your own name. Amen. Amen. Amen.